Good morning, everybody. Okay, <laughs> I see people smiling there. So this morning, I asked Lori permission, we're gonna put the church on fire. <laughs> so Lori said, okay, I wanna ask, I wanna talk to Pastor Joe, Joe and Jonathan to see what they're gonna say. So let's stand up and uh, we're gonna sing a beautiful song called The Church on Fire. We're gonna go slow first and then later on, we're gonna jump on after we get the signal from Philip. <laughs> Spirit here is a power is real and it's gonna happen and it probably will something very good some good is going on about here well there's a light that shines to make the dark disappear there's a power at work but there's nothing to fear something very good something good is going on around here this is a church on fire this is the Holy Spirit's flame. We have a burning desire to lift up Jesus' name. Let the fire burn in every heart to light the way to feed the dark. Let the flame of love burn higher. This is a church. This is a church on fire. Wait, 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 hold it. We can't put the church on fire like this. Come on, Sandy, we need to do something about this. <laughs> one, two, one, two, three. The Holy Spirit is here, yeah. His power is real. Anything can happen and it probably will. Something, something very good, good, something good is going on around here. Well, there's a light that shines to make the dark disappear. There's a power at work, but there's nothing to fear. Something very good, something good is going on around here. This is a church on fire, this is a Holy Spirit flame. We have a burning desire to lift up Jesus' name. Let the fire burn in every heart, to light the way, defeat the dark. Let the flame of love burn higher. This is a church, this is a church on fire. Something very good, something good is going on around here. Well, there's a light that shines to make the darkness appear. There's a power at work, but there's nothing to fear. Something very good, something good is going on around here. This is a church on fire. This is a Holy Spirit flame. We have a burning desire to lift up Jesus' name. Let the fire burn in every heart To light the way, defeat the dark Let the flame of love burn fire This is a church, this is a church on fire This is a church on fire This is a Holy Spirit flame We have a burning desire To lift up Jesus' name Let the fire burn in Light the way defeat the dark Let the flame of love burn higher This is a church, this is a church on fire This is a church, this is a church on fire Hallelujah, thank you very much, thank you <laughs> And we'll continue to our hymnal to God be the glory to God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son, who yielded His life and atonement for sin. And 
wonderful. Good morning. I'm going to read Psalm 27, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, your light has shone into our darkness and exchanged it for the light of your glory because you are my light and my salvation. Thank you for giving up your son to bring us into a relationship with you. Thank you for giving us your word so that we may know you better. Thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit to guide us to grace. Thank you, Lord, for rich you. Thank you for everyone here who shepherds your people back to you. Life makes us threadbare, Lord, but you, you knit up our raveled sleeves of care. You are the great balm that soothes and heals our brokenness. You are the divine physician. Lord, you have said that though our sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. We ask you, Lord, to forgive our transgressions our impatience, our anger, 
our selfishness, and our absence of self-control. We ask you, Lord, to forgive our lack of faith and commitment sometimes, our inadequacies in dealing with each other, and most of all, Lord, our complacency when it comes to dealing with you, Lord. We ask you, Lord, for continued blessings on our Nicaragua team. We know they are traveling now. We ask you to put a hedge of protection around them and keep them safe. We ask you to bless the people that they ministered to, that they would be forever changed, and that by their experience, always be able to reflect your glory. We pray for the sick among us, Lord, those with both physical and mental issues, that you would give them healing and strength. We pray for their families, Lord, that you would bring peace and comfort. We pray especially for the Hill family, the Friesen family, and Lori McMurray's family. We pray for those who have financial problems or are seeking employment. We ask, Lord, that they would be patient and successful and to understand that you are on the job. We pray for the grieving today, Lord, for the lonely and the forgotten that they may be comforted and find peace. We ask you to strengthen our relationship with you, Lord, so that we will learn to always seek your face and place our burdens at the foot of the cross. And finally, as Philippians says, let us not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present our requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. And uh, we ask uh, the, the people who are responsible to bring the offering here, the basket in front, the, the usher. Please. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, it's now time for us to give you an offering, to give you a portion of what you have given to us. Thank you, Lord God, that you are the greatest giver in the world. You have given us so many things. You've given us Jesus to be our savior. You've given us the world to enjoy. You've given us the, um, the scriptures to get to know you better. You've given us many, many things. Lord, we just pray that our offering would be acceptable unto you, that we would give to you uh, with willing hearts and help us to be the best givers we can be um, as you are the number one example. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God.
I always find those uh, videos a little scary with the techno elevator music. <laughs> Will you stand with me if you're able to? Doing a very famous passage today and a way to connect with it is to do something that's been done by God-fearers and Orthodox Jews for thousands of years. And so what I'd like to do with you right now is do something. We've done it before. It's been a little while, but it's called the Shema. Can you say Shema? Shema means to give ear to, to listen to, to obey. And it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. And so what I'd like to do today is to connect with our, our, our history and our brothers and sisters in history. First, we'll do it in the Hebrew, and then we'll do it in English. Sound good? How's your Hebrew? Watch your saliva as it flies, but let's do this together. And let's do it with chutzpah, all right? Are you ready? Shema Israel. Shema Israel. Adonai Elohinu. Adonai Echad. Ve'ehavta. Eloeha. Lebaha. Nefshaha. Lebaha. Meodeho. Ve'ehavta. Laraha. Kamoka, Amen. Amen. Hear, O Israel. Israel. The Lord is God. The Lord Lord alone. alone. Love the Lord your God. God. With all your heart. With all your your soul. With all your your might. might. And love your neighbor neighbor as yourself. yourself. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We've been doing a series this summer on some of Jesus' greatest hits and his greatest stories. And we come to one today that even if you don't come to church often, even if this is your first time in a church, even if you're new to the Bible, you probably know this story. And this story's been told in many ways. Some of you have probably heard a dozen sermons on this scripture passage. We have laws built around this this passage we have stories of stories about this story and so we're going to look at it today and and we're going to take a look at it and then if you're uh, following along in your bibles it's found in the book of luke chapter 15 and we'll get there in a moment Now, one thing you may not know is that uh, about a generation before Jesus, there were two great teachers that lived by the names of Hillel and Shammai. And Hillel and Shammai are held in high regard in Orthodox Jewish circles. Hillel was known as a liberal, and Shammai was known as a very conservative uh, uh, teacher. And one thing they were known for as they lived a generation before Jesus was their debating. And these guys debated, and they debated and debated. Josephus, the ancient historian, uh, captures a lot of the things they debated. And it really got narrowed down to, over the years, eight great debates. Now, when I say Hillel was a liberal, by today's standards, even the most fundamental conservative person in this room would be a liberal. Or, sorry, would be, would look... Would look, would look at what Hillel says as extremely conservative compared to today. But these guys would debate, and they would debate back and forth. And, and one thing they would debate, which became one of the great debates, was over the issue of divorce. When is it lawful, or lawful to divorce your wife? Hillel would say, if she burns your cereal. You can write her a letter of divorce, send her on her way. Shammai would say, only for adultery. And these guys would debate and debate. And what's interesting is you ever study the life of Jesus? And you look at some of these guys who would come and ask him questions. Some, some of these guys who would come to him trying to trap him. Almost all the time, it revolved around one of these eight questions that were all the rage in the generation before him and if you know some of the stories of jesus how does jesus who does which side does jesus align himself with when he answers the question about divorce shammai 
What's interesting, though, is if you continue to study some of these eight great debates, and we're going to look at another one in a second, you'll find with the other seven, he tended to lean towards that radical thinker, Hillel. Now, Hillel, great guy, some of the things he taught, fantastic things. He was a very contemporary thinker. Halal would take the first 39 books of what we would know as the Hebrew Bible, especially the first five, which they knew as Torah, and he had some very radical views, but he would look at the whole breadth of them, whereas Shammai, the conservative, he would only really take literally and see as any priority the first five books of the Bible, what you and I call Torah or the Pentateuch, and his thinking was, if it's good enough for Moses, it's good enough for the rest of us. So along comes Jesus. And he comes into this scene, and he comes into these debates. And, and if you notice anything about Jesus, just like the other great rabbis, the great teachers in history, they had a very distinct way of talking. And if you ever notice about Jesus being the brilliant teacher he was, when Jesus was asked the question, how did he answer it? Most of the time. With a question. See, you and I have grown up in a culture where if we want a question answered, we just, we just ask. And the rabbis, the great teachers know that if you just, someone just tells you the answer, then whose answer is it? It's theirs. So what they want to do, and they realize that the best way to teach and to help people own their answers was to ask questions, take them on that journey, so that then when they arrive at the answer, who does the answer belong to? It belongs to them. Let me give you an example here from Jesus. From Matthew 21, 23, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, you'll ask them, why don't you believe in them? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know and he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, did Jesus answer their question? They went away probably thinking, no. I would suggest, and I would argue that I think he hints at the answer here. And it's absolutely brilliant. Back then, great teachers, rabbis, it was being this whole school of teaching, it was becoming um, formalized. And the way to become a rabbi, and back in those days, as it was becoming institutionalized, is you would need two other rabbis to come to you, lay their hands on you, and give you the blessing so that you would then receive the authority. If you ever read through Matthew or Luke, the religious leaders are always asking Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? They're trying to figure out where Jesus got his ordination from. They're trying to figure out where he got his license to teach. They're trying to figure out who ordained him. Because if no one ordained him, they don't have to listen to him. But if someone did ordain him, they better listen. Now, does Jesus answer their question? And, and the belief, they, they take their thinking, this whole idea, it goes all the way back to the time of Moses, like 1,500 years earlier, back when Moses was burning out, his, his father-in-law Jethro comes to him, and Jethro says, Moses, you're not going to last, you need to delegate. Moses then calls 70 elders, lays hands on them, the blessing of God calls, comes upon them, as goes the tradition, and these men all became ordained. And so time comes on. These guys are trying to get Jesus, pin Jesus down. And I think Jesus, if you look at this verses carefully in this dialogue, I would suggest that he gets this authority, not just are we told by who, but when. What do you think? I would suggest Jesus got his authority at his baptism. Because John was there, 
And who was the second witness? Holy Spirit. And so Jesus, in this brilliant way that only the great teachers could do, answers their question with questions, and they walk away. I don't even think they get it, but absolutely brilliant. Now we come to this debate that we're talking about today, and it comes from Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor. Ve'ahavta, your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And Shammai, Shammai taught that good, God-obedient Jewish people only love, their neighbor is the only person they are to love, are godly, Torah-believing Jewish people. They're the only ones who deserve your love. Hillel, on the other other hand, taught that loving your neighbor, your neighbor is even those enemies, the Romans, who hold us in bondage, you're to love them. You're to walk that extra mile for them. You love everyone with the exception of Samaritans. And Samaritans, if you're not aware of them, they were a type... The Jews had intermarried once they were exiled. Some of the Jewish people had intermarried with Canaanites. So you had this kind of what they referred to as half-breeds. And they saw them as as abominations that shouldn't even be allowed to breathe. They saw them as, they didn't see them as people. There's prayers recorded in history that the, the rabbis and the Jewish people would pray that God would prevent these Samaritans from entering into heaven. That's how much the animosity was. That's how much they hated them. So if you're there with me in Luke chapter 10, verse 25, it's on page 1171 if you're following on your Bibles. Let's read along here. Let's look at this story here. Um, Luke chapter 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law came to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Shema Israel, Adonai Elohim, Adonai Ahad, Ve'ehavta, Adonai Eloheha, Behold Levaha, Uvahal Nefshavha, Ve'ehavta, Lareha, Kamoka, Amen. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. A good teacher, he asked a question to help them arrive at the answer. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer or the expert in religious law wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, or some kind of ant creature, as you saw in the video there. (laughs) When he fell in the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. This sounds just like these bar jokes we used to tell growing up, isn't it? Like a priest, a rabbi, and a go into the bar. Anyhow, a a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? And the expert of the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So this religious expert very smart guy comes to Jesus and he asks him a very incredible question. Teacher, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what is law? And he goes, love God, love others. He tethers them together. And, and this whole discussion starts with a question that for many of us here, we would long for our friends to ask us, ask us this question. For some of us here today, we would love and long, and we long for our spouse to ask us this question. For that coworker, when you're at the water cooler, it would knock your socks off if they asked you this question. But you long for it, don't you? For that family member, for that extended family, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
How do I get to heaven? What happens to me when I die? What can I do about it? Now, how many, I don't know if you ever thought about this before, and I'm sure you've heard so many sermons around this story before, but maybe you haven't heard this. How many of you would answer this question like Jesus did? Someone comes to you and says, how do I inherit eternal life? What's your answer? Love God and love others? Would anybody answer it like that? You don't have to put your hands up. I mean, don't you agree with Jesus here? This is not the standard answer any of us have been taught to give in an evangelical church. Would you agree? Because it sounds like be obedient and do good works and you get your get out of hell free card. Love God, love others, do this, you will live. If you want to pass from death to life, all you got to do is love your neighbor. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we studied the parable of the sower. And we know in order to be good soil, we, we, we need to uh, hear the word, accept the word, live in the word, and the word grows inside of us, and we, and we, we persevere, and we become this great crop. Now, you can relax a little bit today. Because Jesus is not saying to this man, loving deeds on earth get you to heaven. But he is confirming that loving deeds are the marks of a heaven-bound person. Faith, faith by itself without works is dead. But if you really believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a living faith that feeds and it clothes and it loves neighbors. Would you agree? Now this, I love this guy, because he's got chutzpah, but this religious expert, he's not done yet. I mean, he's just getting warmed up here, and I don't know about you, but I, I used to be around philosophy students, religious philosophy students, all the time. They're never done talking. And I also know, and, and I invite lots of people to my homes who always seem to come in pairs when they ring the doorbell. And they're not necessarily there for dialogue. They're there as protagonists. And if there's anything I've learned in my life with a lot of these incredible individuals is that debating with them is a pretty useless exercise. Usually it's totally pointless because it's usually going to end up being a short exchange because they're not interested in dialoguing. They've come packed with their head full of knowledge and they're going to deliver it whether you're going to listen to them or not. Their, their heads are full. They're ready to go. And I found a lot of times that I blessed them on their way. But there's been those moments where we have these conversations. And you can have them if you've got skill and, and, and you've got compassion and courage and honesty. And we learn a lot from Jesus in that respect in this story. And it's interesting. Jesus could have corrected this man's theology today. He could have corrected it right then and there. He could have taken him on the ultimate ride from Genesis to Malachi, the Italian prophet. He could have totally rocked his world and twisted him around and showed him how far he was way off, and he doesn't. Because he understands that this wasn't about converting a man's theology, because you can convert a man's theology and not convert his soul. And Jesus is the one who came to do what? Seek and save the lost. So up comes this guy, this religious expert, your lawyer, whatever translation you're reading. He's this bright spark. He's got clever answers. He's got a smart mind, and he's got a fast mouth. I mean, this guy is an expert. This is the guy, if you ever go to a party, he's what I like to call the parachuter. Do you know that phrase? No? So you're there at a party, gathering, Christian fellowship event, for those of you who don't like the words parties. maybe. <laughs> and you're telling your three-tooth wisdom, or wisdom-tooth story. Okay? Let me just let you know right now, if you ever have a two- or three-wisdom-tooth story, don't tell it. Because those four-wisdom-teeth story people will always parachute in with their better story and steal the whole deal from you. 
So you're telling your beautiful three wisdom two story, and it's great. You're like, yeah, they took it out. They sedated my mouth. I was out sleep. When I woke up, I had these chipmunk cheeks. I could have stored nuts for a year. It was fantastic. And then I went home. They gave me some Tylenol threes. I only needed three, and then I was good to go. And within a week, I was eating applesauce. <laughs> and at the party, <clears throat> fellowship gathering, that parachuter's listening to your story, and he parachutes in with his tales of lore about how he had seven wisdom teeth removed from his, from his mouth, and all the teeth were impacted, twisted upside down, and the roots were twisted around his tongue, and when the orthodontist was pulling out the teeth, the power went out, so he had to use an ice pick and a pair of pliers, and they ripped them all out. Painkillers, no way! By the afternoon, you were having corn in the cob, and, and, and oh, candy apples. Never tell those two or three uh, tooth wisdom stories. That's this guy. That's this, wis- this, that's this expert. He, he probably knew this book, at least the first 39 uh, chapters, or sorry, books of it, inside and outside. You got a question or answer, he could take you to the place in Scripture verbatim, quote it back to you. He knew all this stuff. He had all this information up here, and he wanted to look good. And he really wanted to look good in front of this guy named Jesus. And Jesus turns the tables on him by entrapping him with a simple question that even a five-year-old could answer. And right now, this religious expert, he's looking pretty dumb. And Jesus is like, go do that and you'll live. And so he looks bad, but now we ask a follow-up question. Now, what did this religious expert need? If you're following along your notes, he didn't need instruction. He needed to be humbled. And Jesus decides that this man's problem is not his theology, it's his moral complacency. And, And you see it right in the first question he asks. He says, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Because I'm sure it's going on in his head, whatever it is, I can do it. I know all the stuff. I'm intelligent. And he comes in with his big fat head and Jesus is like, here's here's a dose of some humility. I am going to bust his eye balloon. And so he tells this story. Tell me a story, Jesus. And he says, look at this road. Not this one, but this one's scary too. It may pop up in a second. It may not. But there's a road called the Jericho Road, and Jesus takes them right to this place in this story. And to the Jewish mind, not to us, when we talked about this before, the road we think of that he's describing here is this wide road. This road is 18 inches at some of his widest margins with a 500-foot drop-off on one side and a cliff on the other. And this is the picture that Jesus wants to create when he tells this story. And he gives us this vivid picture of this 18-inch wide road, horrible drop-off, precarious drop-off, wide hill on the other side. And a priest went down that road. And a Levite went down that road. And as I talked about in the past, this isn't like the 401 where there'd be plenty of room to navigate or even the video didn't capture that well. The priest and Levi, they would have had a step over this half-dead dying man. And he's trying, and Jesus is showing there's this striking contrast here between the priest Levite and the Samaritan. They should have at least attempted to help that man. You got this poor, broken, beaten, bleeding to death man. And he's ignored by these two religious individuals. And then he experiences this tender compassion of God through this individual, the Samaritan. And we see so often in scriptures, God's compassion comes to those who are in need. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded, especially as a church, that we can't hide behind religious statements. We can't hide behind them. Do you know our church purpose is? I don't know if they'll jump up now. I'm not sure if our projector's down for the count. But here's our purpose. 
Richview Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples through worship, evangelism, discipleship, and demonstrating our love by meeting the needs of others, particularly believers. And we sang some pretty powerful songs this morning, didn't we? About the love of God and loving other people. And some of you, you may have put pretty hefty checks in those offering plates. At least I hope so. And some of you might be dressed and looking really good today. And the person beside you, you can't stand. Or you have this deep-seated fury to that person who's wronged you in your family or at work or at school and you can't let it go. Or you have that sibling who you just want them to take a nice long walk off a short pier. And the tale of the Samaritan, even though it gets twisted, it is not a tale to just give us some kind of model of moral obligation. Because that's often how it's taught, isn't it? That's why we have things like the Good Samaritan Law. I mean, i got to pull up my socks. i got to get helping at the food bank. I need to go to Nicaragua. Next year, I'm committed to the block party, the garage sale. I need to change my attitude. But be careful, because that's not the point of this story. We can get caught up with this idea that if I do a little bit more, if I do a little bit more of this, I'll climb off the chain and I'll get closer to the gates of heaven. You can't get any closer to the gates than the closest you can get because of God's amazing grace to you in Jesus. You can't make yourself more acceptable. Here's what we need to take today. By my compassion and love, am I more like Christ? Do I belong to him? Is there evidence in my life and in my lifestyle that a divine transaction has taken place? Look at that Samaritan. He completely inconveniences himself. He, he, he gets off his donkey. He stops to assist his enemy. He probably makes himself vulnerable to the same robbers that just beat the other guy up. He, he puts him on his own donkey. He gives him his own stuff. He doesn't do this for fame, reputation. He inconveniences himself, sacrifices. It probably hurts. It probably costs him. And it, it completely inconveniences him. And this text, this story here, it really challenges religious people and church people. That, that we have this tendency to draw boundaries around things that God never wanted us to draw boundaries around. There are things we should draw boundaries around, and the world's going to come and want to knock those boundaries down. There's things that religious people draw boundaries around that God never intended us to draw boundaries around. And in this story, we got two religious men who are asking, if I help this man, what's going to happen to me? And then we got this Samaritan who says, if I don't help this man, what's going to happen to him? And the brilliance of this story is Jesus takes this religious expert, this lawyer, and he puts him on the road. And he's like, you have to understand what it means to be a neighbor and a whole new paradigm. I want to read you a couple of verses, brilliant verses from Proverbs. Proverbs 19.4. Wealth brings many new friends. The Hebrew word there actually is neighbors. Wealth brings many new neighbors. But a poor man is deserted by his neighbor. Or Proverbs 19.6. Many curry favor with a ruler, and everyone is a friend of a man who gives gifts. Or verse 7. A poor man is shunned by all his relatives. How much more do his friends avoid him? Though he pursues them with pleading, they are nowhere to be found. Poor people, outsiders, different people, they're a burden and they're scary. They're time-consuming. They're draining. They don't tend to add to our bottom line. They don't tend to make us look good. And they really don't make us look good around our social circles. What are we going to do about this? 
something really good wisdom is let's learn from Jesus Christ today. People of Jesus are neighbors to people who don't have neighbors. And so the question I have for you today is very different than the one Jesus had for that man or that man had for Jesus. My question for you isn't, who is your neighbor? My question for you today is, who is the Samaritan? It's not the religious expert. Is it not our Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus wasn't poor. He had it all. He was up in heaven with God, but he looked down and he saw what the geographical conditions were like down here, and he saw sheep without a shepherd. He saw people without neighborhoods and neighbors. And so he came down and he befriended them all and he became their neighbor. And the only way he could do it was he became poor himself. He gave up everything up there and became poor himself. And we see throughout his life, he borrows donkeys. He asks for bread and fish. He even borrows his own tomb. He borrows a grave. And he makes himself poor so that you and I can become wealthy. And if you believe him like I do, he did that for you. So what do we got to do? My challenge for you today, especially if you're not here, and especially if the brain's churning right now, is get connected here. Get connected in the neighborhood. Get to know the people who live in our neighborhood, even in our residence. Tonight, if you're like, where do I start? Come to the hymn sing, 6 p.m. Get to know these incredible people next door. They're a treasure. Many of them love Jesus. Many of them don't have neighbors. And they're in need of someone to make them their neighbor. If you want to get to know people in our neighborhood, uh, get involved with the food bank on Sunday afternoons, and you can meet our neighbors. In a couple weeks, we're going to be kicking off our fall programs, get in kids' ministry, youth ministry, even if you don't like them. And you can get to know their parents. Get involved with the other things they're going. Get to know the amazing people in this neighborhood who need neighbors. Get in a community group. When you get connected on this road, it leads to a life of service and a life of sacrifice. And when everything is lived within those two, the two questions that come out when you live that kind of life are, am I loving God? And am I loving my neighbor? And what will happen to rich few if we live that way? People will run into us. And we're going to notice if we become more and more the way Christ wants us to be, we're going to be doing everything we can to divest ourselves of money and to give ourselves away to our neighbors. What does that look like? Especially for some of us who are feeling like, oh, he's going to ask us for money right now. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that if we honor our Lord Jesus Christ, we won't care. If we model that, I can't wait to see what our young people will do. Every single serious person here is going to have this game plan for how you serve your neighbor. And it'll involve your estates. It'll involve everything you own because that's part of what it means to love your neighbor and take the gospel to the poor. And I believe that's what Jesus Christ is saying, especially to the lead pastor here today. There are so many people who have lost their neighbor. And Jesus has made us neighbor. And it's a clear sign that he has his grip on our lives when we love those who are unloved. That's what it's all about. Can I invite the band up? Now Jesus turns to that religious expert at the end of the story and he asks him the question, which one was a neighbor? And the expert in law replies, the one who had mercy on him. I wonder, I wonder if that lawyer, that religious expert, I wonder if he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. And Jesus says, go and do the same. And like all great stories, 
that Jesus tells, that the great teachers told, what did that man do? We don't know. Because a great story like this always invites the listener into it. You become the character. It's your job to finish the story. Can I ask as we go to prayer today? My prayer for you is that you ask, God, what does this mean? What does it mean to neighbor somebody? And if you're tracking with me here, I'm going to pray for that in your lives right now. So please bow your heads with me. Thank you, God, for coming down to earth from heaven to a bunch of enemies and robbers and thieves and giving up everything so that we wouldn't be eternally neighborless. Thanks for walking the road of death so that we wouldn't have to walk it. You walked it in our place. We know we don't have to go far to do the work you've called us to do. Help us. Help us to be good neighbors. Help us to repopulate neighborhoods that are mostly in need. Thanks for making us your neighbor. In your precious name. Amen. So let's stand up and uh, we finish uh, this uh, service. Jesus is all the world to me. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I am sad, Beautiful life with such a friend. Beautiful.
Before you get on your four-wheel donkeys and head on out, uh, just a couple announcements. Uh, hymn sing tonight at 6 p.m. At 7 p.m. tonight, we're going to be doing a prayer walk. If you've never done one before, we're going to be walking around in the neighborhood in groups, just praying for our neighbors, praying for our, our Nicaragua team, praying for just the whole neighborhood and the community. So, and if you're not all that mobile, we'll also have a group that just hangs out here in the, um, in the foyer. I'd love to have you here at 7 uh, one other announcement is next week we're having um, baptisms. So we're going to be doing some baptisms here at the end of the service. My question would be for any of you who've been putting that off because you think you got to have it all together and you got to be perfect, learn from the religious expert. You can't, you can't have all the answers. You can't have all the questions. You can't be perfect. The whole point of baptism is you recognizing that you're not perfect, but the one to whom you follow is. And now you're taking it public. Did everyone know that you're following him? We'd love to pray for you following the service today. If you just need time here just for a quiet place, we'll keep this room quiet. <laughs> 